And our sermon passage comes from Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 14 through 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise that I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. And in those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night so that the day will and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people so that they are no longer a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if I have not established my covenant with the day and the night and fixed uh, order of heaven and earth, then I will reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant, and will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. For I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Pray with me as we come before God's word this morning. Merciful Father in heaven, may you send your spirit to open our hearts and our minds to the truths of your word. By your spirit's power, you would help apply these truths to our life. We would never turn from you. Give us grace in this time. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we you know, continue in the season of Advent, this is the second Sunday of this season of Advent. We're dropping into one of the major prophets to consider you know, what does he have to teach us about this season, you know, the season of Advent, where we both look back and remember Christ's first coming in order to look forward to his second coming. You know, we are in the middle of an Advent season uh, as a church, um, and we will be until Christ returns, you know, and <clears throat> last week we considered the, the beginning of this story and our great need for Christ to come and rescue us because of the result of the, the fall that happened in the garden. And as we kind of fast forward in this story of redemption from Genesis to Jeremiah, which is a lot of history, we're going to see how actually some of those things that we talked about last week in the, the fall in the garden actually played out for God and his people. And how some of those themes actually developed uh, for God and his people. You know, dropping into a prophet like Jeremiah, right kind of in the middle of it, can be really challenging for us. There's a lot happening here behind the scenes that are difficult to understand. But I think we actually need to know for the wildness of what Jeremiah is actually saying to take roots in our lives. And if you'll bear with me for a moment, 
I'm going to try to quickly kind of summarize how we got to this point of Jeremiah. And I think it will help set the stage to help us understand what's happening. So in Genesis, after the garden, what happens? Adam and Eve, they get, they get sent into the wilderness. And then shortly after they get sent into the wilderness, God chooses um, Abraham to, to be his representative in the world. So he's like, I'm going to bless the world through Abraham now. I'm going to choose Abraham and his family. And through them, I'm going to let my, my garden grow over the earth. So that, that happens in Genesis 12. And then by the end of the book of Genesis, the people find themselves uh, in Egypt. And, you know, it doesn't take long until the Egyptians get threatened by the Israelites and they enslave uh, all the Israelites. And, you know, the book of Exodus is about this mo- movement of God hearing his people, rescuing his people out of Exodus, bringing them to the thing that he promised Abraham, this, this beautiful land, this blessing, this children without number. And, and then after Exodus, they finally get taken to that promised land. And they're finally in that land. And, you know, we've been walking through, we walked through Ruth this fall and that was the time of the judges. So after they, they got to the promised land, they set up these judges, and these judges kind of ruled and governed the people. And then in Samuel, we see actually they, they move from the time of judges to the time of, of kings. You know, they first get King Saul, who, who governs for a while, and then we get the great King David. And under David, the, the kingdom flourishes, and it expands, and it grows, and it's beautiful. And then not long after David, in fact, David's grandson, Rehoboam, uh, great, yeah, his grandson Rehoboam actually splits the kingdom into two. So once there was one nation, and now uh, shortly after David, his grandson splits the kingdom in two. So now you have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And this is important because shortly after the, the, the kingdom split, the northern kingdom, from the very beginning, they started worshiping idols. They started worshiping false gods. And so the Assyrians came up and over and, and destroyed them and took them out. But the southern kingdom actually lasted a little while longer, a couple hundred years longer than the northern kingdom. And Jeremiah is writing kind of at the end of that southern kingdom's life before they also get taken into exile and get destroyed. He's writing, he begins to write during the time of uh, Josiah, King Josiah. And King Josiah is kind of famous because he was the young, he was the, he was the king that became a king when he was really young. He discovered the law, reinstituted the law, helped people worship God again. Uh, But after Josiah died, we find that he was actually the last good king of the southern kingdom. And after Josiah died, his kids, they started uh, actually turning Israel away from the worship of God. And the people fell into all sorts of crazy idol worship, even adopting some of the heinous practices of child sacrifices. So they would take their children, they would kill them to the altar of other gods. And eventually, God turned his justice and his wrath against the southern kingdom as well. And so he sends the country of Babylon, which now Babylon's risen to power. They overtake Assyria, and then they kind of go and take all of Assyria's land, and they start to go into the southern kingdom. And right now, they're at the doors of Jerusalem. And actually, when Jeremiah is writing this, Jerusalem is under siege from Babylon. It's about to be overtaken. They're about to lose everything. And it's in the middle of this like moment where they're about to lose everything, their nation, their kingdom, their king, the temple's about to get destroyed. All the things that identify them as the people of God is about to be removed and they're about to be kicked out of the land. It's in the middle of that moment that we find these beautiful words of promise. And as we explore these promises, we're going to see the scene is set with so much tension. 
They're about to lose everything, and yet in the midst of losing everything, God gives them this profound promise of hope. And this promise of hope for them is actually a promise of hope for you and me as well, and for us as a church community. And so I think there's, there's two aspects of this promise I'm going to talk about this morning. The first is that it's a future promise, and the second that it's a faithful promise. It's a future promise, and it's a faithful promise. First, a future promise. Look with me back here at verse 14, how he begins this prophetic moment <clears throat> with this promise. And Jeremiah is actually locked up in, the, in a room. He was, the people in southern kingdom, they didn't like Jeremiah because he spoke truth to them, and people don't usually like when you speak true things to them. And so he was actually locked up when he was writing this to the people. And he says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of of Judah. Behold, the days are coming. Like the day he is talking about is a, isn't going to happen today. It's a future day, right? Babylon's actually going to complete their work. Their seeds will eventually overtake Jerusalem. But Babylon doesn't get the final say. In fact, towards the end of Jeremiah, in chapter 50, what do we learn? But Jeremiah tells us that God's actually going to come and judge Babylon. Um, so Babylon 2's writing is on the wall. They're going to fail. The promise that he's talking about is not a now promise, but it's a future one. And in verse 14, he continues, right? I will fulfill the promise, the promise I made to the house of Israel, the house of Judah. So he's saying, listen, all the things that I've said before, all the things I promised you are still going to happen. What is that promise? Well, in Genesis 49, at the end of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his 12 sons, which become the 12 tribes of Israel, this is what he says to Judah in, 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 49, in, in Genesis 49.10. He says this, The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So the tribe of Judah is known as being the kingly tribe. From them, kings will come to rule. This is the, from the line of David. This is David's line. He comes from the line of Judah. And God makes a covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7, and kind of reiterates this and says, Listen, your kingdom will be forever. This is the promise that he says will happen still. I will fulfill this. The future promise will still happen despite present circumstances. In verse 15, he continues, he says, listen, in those days and at that time, right, at this appointed day and moment, what's going to happen? I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. There's a righteous branch that's still going to come. One day, something, at my future appointed time, this will happen. And he's going to come and he's going to execute justice and righteousness. He will save Judah. He said, one day you will have a new king. One day you will have a righteous king who will govern well and he will rescue you from oppression. He will not let outside kingdoms come and overtake you. Unlike those who have come before, he will be a good king. He will protect you. He will guide you. He will lead you. And, you know, the promise continues. It's not just a new king, but look here. It's a new city. It's a new Jerusalem called the Lord is our righteousness. It's a city marked by its devotion and love for God versus the city like it is now, which is marked by its devotion and love for idols and false worship and sacrificing their children. This city, when it comes, will be a righteous city. A new city, a new Jerusalem called the Lord is our righteousness, a city that is holy like God is holy. And it goes on, not just a new city, not just a new king. This is a kingdom that is eternal. And it goes on to say a kingdom filled with priests. Look at verse 17. For thus says the Lord, 
David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of David. Got to be thinking if someone was reading this, like, are you kidding me, Jeremiah? Like, look out your window. We're about to lose everything. The, the, the time of David is over. But he continues. He, he, he keeps going. Verse 18. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. He's promising a new priesthood. This, again, is wild because the temple is about to be destroyed. So I'm going to lose the throne. I'm going to lose the temple but we're still going to have a king and we're still going to have priests. This doesn't make sense. But he's saying, listen, you're never going to lack in this future promise. You're always going to be in the Lord's presence. This is an eternal priesthood, a forever mediating of God's grace and his peace to his people, God's righteousness to his people. In this place, justice, righteousness reign forever. In this place, the people dwell with God and God with his people. It's a new Eden Jeremiah is saying, listen, despite everything that you see, despite the destruction all around you, despite what's about to happen to you, this will not be your end. What a promise for this people. The future of God's people, the future of you, the future of myself, doesn't depend on the ebbs and flows of our days. Doesn't depend on the ebbs and flows of our jobs, of our workplaces, of our schoolwork and homework. It doesn't depend on the ebbs and flows of, of governments. Right, what does scripture tell us? Kingdoms totter and rage, they come and go, but God's kingdom, it's a forever kingdom. It's a forever one. It outlasts all of this. It outlasted Babylon, even great Babylon. His kingdom and his rule have no end. And he's saying, listen, despite your exile that's coming, people which Moses actually prophesied would happen back in Deuteronomy 30. Despite this, despite your disobedience, despite your worshiping idols, despite all that I should do to you, despite what's happening outside the walls of this city, this will not be your end. He couldn't say it stronger. Like they can tear down the throne, they can tear down the temple, but they cannot tear down me. I'm greater than these things. Your end will be a new kingdom with a forever priest king. This is your future. Man, this is wild. Likely the people that read this, this prophecy, once it was written down and recorded, were probably the people that were in exile reading this. You got to think that it's probably hard for them to believe that this is true. Like, what what if you were in crazy debt and I said, listen, tomorrow your debt's going to be gone. You're going to wake up. And your debt's going to be removed. You'd be like, that's kind of far-fetched, Craig. Right? How, how could you possibly know that? I mean, I got a lot of debt. How could you possibly tell me that my debt's going to be removed tomorrow? How? Well, the, the reason why this is so hopeful is the emphasis is on who's, who's the actor that the emphasis is on here. It's God. I will do this. God will do this. They gotta be, we're about to be destroyed. We're about to be stamped out. There's no more kings left. You know, whenever they went into exile, the worry was always, is the line of David over? Is this it? Is, is, is that promise finally run its course? And in this, we find no, that God is faithful. I think oftentimes, you know, in our own lives, in our own present circumstances, we feel much the same way. Depending on where you're at in life, your current problems, your current issues can feel so overwhelming in the moment, so crushing that you can forget about your future hope. 
whether it's in seeing you know, the groaning creation, seeing global struggles, the everyday hardships of leaving, living in a world where sin still exists, it's easy for us to focus on those things and actually lose hope because we forget that our promise is actually a future promise. And it isn't just us, right, here now who struggle with this. God's people have always struggled with this. You know, I heard a story recently about someone who decided they weren't going to spend them all the money and all the energy to go to school because they saw all the current chaotic moment of today and they thought, well, the world's probably going to end, so why, why waste my time and my money going to school? You know, that's a person who's actually lost hope in this future. And what this is telling us, listen, despite, despite yourself, despite all your sin, despite what looks bad, this is not going to be your end. We lose hope when we are f- more focused at our present moment than we are our future hope, but God has promised to bring our future hope to bear. We don't need to fear the raging kingdoms of today or of tomorrow. God says this boldly, I will fulfill the promise. It is a future promise, but this is what hope is, isn't it? Hope is in something future. It's the nature of it. It's, it's in something that is unseen, And our prayer should be, Lord, haste the day when our faith will be made sight, when our hope will be in front of us. And until that day, we hope and we long for this kingdom to be established. Which can kind of lead us, in our struggles, lead us to the question, well, how can we be so confident in this future hope? How do we hold on to hope when hope seems fleeting? How do we hold on to hope when everything we see around us is chaotic? This is the second aspect of this promise here. It's not just, it's a future promise, but it's also a faithful promise. It's a faithful promise. In this, we learn that God is not the God of broken promises. As if expecting the people who are reading this to doubt, uh, especially in their moment of seeing all their worst nightmares come to pass, losing everything, he kind of gives us this really interesting analogy here in verse 19 through 22, he says this, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, If you can break my covenant with the day and with my covenant with the night, so that the day and the night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. It's kind of a confusing verse, right? I, I had to read it several times to realize, like, what is he saying here? He's, what he's saying to them is this, listen, Just like you can't stop me from bringing the night and the day, the sun and the moon, you can't stop me from keeping this covenant. It's as sure as my covenant that govern all of creation, he's saying, which he has faithfully done since the beginning, without fail. He is faithful. He keeps his word. He's saying, I will bring to pass what I have promised. I will multiply the line of David so that it can't be numbered. It will be eternal. Not only that, but listen, my covenant with the priests is eternal as well. There will always be a king to govern, and there will always be priests to minister grace and mercy, to be mediators. His throne is forever. His temple is forever. His presence with his people forever. Remember how insane this is going to sound to people when their temple is destroyed and the throne is destroyed. He's saying, listen, God's kingdom is actually bigger than a stone chair and bigger than the walls of a temple. Nothing can stop him because he is the faithful one. 
Right? Just as he has been faithful to cause night and day without fail, he is faithful to bring about deeper promises. And he actually doubles down on, on this belief here at the end, starting back again in verse 23. It says, And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Have you not observed that these people are saying the Lord has rejected the two clans that he chose? Thus they have despised my people, so that they're no longer a nation in their sight. He's saying, listen, there's, there's, when it's talking about these other nations here, these other nations are actually the foreign nations. These aren't Israelites that are saying God has forsaken us, but it's, it's other nations. It's referencing those on the outside, those are, that are actually witnessing the destruction. Those that have witnessed, seen the destruction of the northern kingdom, now they're seeing the destruction of the southern kingdom. And they're thinking, listen, maybe God has actually left these people. Right, in their minds, anytime their lives didn't go well, it was because their gods had left them, that they made them angry. And so now they're, they're leaving them and their, their blessings are going away. So as these outsiders are looking on, they're thinking, listen, God has left them. But with our God, we know that present circumstances are often misleading. God is always at work. God never leaves the work of his hands. He hasn't rejected them, even though they've rejected him. And he's saying to them again in verse 25, listen, if I haven't done this, then I won't do that. It's the interesting thing about this analogy that God uses is that it's in the negative. And it's kind of, that's what makes it confusing, as if to point out how ridiculous the notion is that he's going to stop bringing the sun and he's going to stop bringing the moon. He's saying, of course, I am faithful to my promises. It's as ridiculous to assume that I wouldn't continue my promises, my covenant with David, as if I wasn't going to continue to make the sun and the moon rise. And then he actually triples down on this, I would say, by calling forth Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob He's saying, listen, I'm calling back to the old foundations of the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. His promise, the promises of God are of old. How do you know that something is faithful? Well, because it lasts a long time. You know, you have that faithful car that's lasted for 20 years. You, you have that, that faithful house that's been around for 100. You have that faithful friend that's been with you through thick and through thin, right? Well, God is a faithful one who hasn't just been in like one lifetime, but generation after generation after generation. He is the always faithful one, faithful like we can only imagine from one generation to the next. God, God's promises are faithful. God's promises are long-suffering. You know, even a faithful friend, you might think, oh, maybe I got to the end of it with this one, <laughs> right? With, with this thing I just did or with this thing that that friend just did to me, maybe we actually hit the road on that and we hit that roadblock. But with God, even when that happens, even when they're worshiping idols, his faithfulness endures forever. His, his, his promises are so faithful they can't be thwarted by sinful people. They are more sure than the rhythms of night and day. Nothing can stop the faithfulness of the future promises. He says, I will. I will restore the fortunes I, and will have mercy on them. All that is lost, all that is being torn down will be rebuilt and it will be better and more beautiful than it was before. In their darkest hour, when the end is near, they are told an advent is at hand. Redemption is coming for them. They are told to set their gaze on that hope, to, to stop staring at the walls that are going to be torn around and, and raise their gaze higher to the Lord, who is still seated on his throne. You know, the wild thing is most of these people aren't going to experience this, any kind of return from exile in their lifetime. 
their, their hope is this future hope. They're called the hope and the trust. And in this, the redemption is not just this individual redemption. It's not about their own personal redemption because they're not going to actually experience it, at least on earth in their time. But it's a corporate one. It's about their legacy. right? They're, now they're called to train their children in that hope. So their children's children can, tr- can be trained in that hope. And their children's children's children can have that same hope. And so that we sitting here, we are, we, are, we are representatives of this legacy of people passing hope down from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next. Training their children to hope in this future promise because in the advent of Christ, we found that their future hope finally became a present one. Generations after this, they begin to see the fruits of their, of their hope in Christ. Like Christ, the one who comes in the line of David, in the line of Judah, Right, David's line actually, we find, was not lost in the great siege after all. He still is ushering in a new kingdom. He is holding the scepter. His throne is forever. And in Christ, what do we see? We find the throne is reestablished. No one's really sat on this throne since, since then until Jesus comes and sits on the throne. And, and, and in him, the throne of David is reestablished. They are experiencing restoration in his throne. He does not give up. And it's not just a throne, right? But Christ is the great high priest, too. He has come to forever mediate his grace and his mercy. It says his presence never departs from his people, right? And now he's not in the buildings of stone, but he's put his spirit. The spirit of God is now in our hearts. And our hearts now become temples of the Lord. That temple is now inside you as God lives inside and dwells in you through his Holy Spirit, and this promise isn't just about Jesus, actually. But as he claims us and brings us into his new kingdom, we actually become a kingdom of priests. That's actually what Leviticus calls his people. What we see in Leviticus, it says that God's people were to be a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. And this happens as Christ makes a claim on our hearts and our lives. And now everywhere we go, because we're all temples, and where the temple is, it's where the presence of God is. Now everywhere where we go, God's presence actually goes with us in a very real way. Now we are actually the very hands and the feet of Christ. This is why we're called Christ's body. Because where your body goes, that's where you go. I don't know if you know that or not, but if you're physically in a place, you're actually in that place. It's a wild notion. And so now everywhere you go, God actually goes with you if his spirit is living inside of you. Spreading the kingdom wherever we go, it In this, we see it actually begins to outnumber the sand and it keeps expanding and spreading and growing until actually the whole earth is is one day going to be filled with his glory, filled with people who have Christ living inside of them. And that's, that's the purpose of missions, isn't it? To go out into the world so that everyone can be filled with the presence of Christ. This is the the future advent that we are actually working and watching and hoping for, that one day all the earth will be filled with his glory. And as we do... We're called to be a people who remember. The reason why Israel fell is because they forgot. Right? King Josiah remembered God and reinstituted his laws, but as soon as he died, what happened? They forgot again. And they went back to the old ways of worshiping idols. And we too, when we forget, when we forget who God is, when we forget his redemption, we fall. When we lose sight of our great hope, we fade away. 
And this is easy for us to do. The world is actually set up to get you distracted from your hope that you have. It is, it is made to do this, right? You read the news and you think, man, things are bad. You go to work and you think, man, work is hard. You know, you, you, you raise your children and you think, man, raising children is difficult. It's challenging. And because we experience the challenges of everyday life, we lose hope. The world makes us fear. It makes us forget who our great king is, who has taken care of us until this moment, and who will continue to do so until he returns. So that's why we have to build rhythms of remembrance. Rhythms to lift our gaze to remember that despite the, the sadness in our world, despite the sadness in our lives and the struggles that we have as children, as parents, despite our aches and pains, Jesus is on his throne. His kingdom is established and will be established on earth as it is in heaven. As sure as the night and the day come, his kingdom will come. We're called to hope and remember. And as we do that, we actually become a light in the darkness. We become light in a world that knows no hope. In a world that, that thrives on fear, we become a beacon, a light of the truth of Scripture. Remember. You know, remembering seems like an easy task, doesn't it? Of course I can remember. You know, I think that often I, I'll have a thought in my head and I'm like, I don't need to write that down. I'll remember it. Five seconds later, it's like, uh, oops. What I, or, I, or I get up and I, I get up from my desk often. I'm like, I start walking down the hallway. And then five seconds later, David's like, what are, you, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I, I forgot what I was doing. So we think remembering's easy, but if I can't remember like something that I thought five seconds ago, how easy it is for me to forget these deep truths. Remembering is hard, and it's our great downfall is that we, we struggle to remember, and so we have to build rhythms to remember the great truths of the gospel. Sunday is one of those where we, we remember weekly Christ's sacrifice, his great hope that we're united to him through his sacrifice. But that's Sunday rhythm is probably not enough to really remember. This is why we need fellowship with each other in the week. This is why we wake up early and we pray, remember. This is why we pray before we go to bed to remember. We are a forgetful people. We're prone to forget. And unless we set our our gaze regularly on the Lord, we will forget. And just like in Jeremiah's time and in the first coming of Christ, What we're going to find, it's often when things look most bleak that the hope of Advent shines the brightest. And this is where we're called, like the great psalm tells us, put not your hope in horses and chariots. Put not your hope in your present circumstances, but in the future and faithful promise that is coming and that is ours when Christ returns. May we be a people who long for that great Advent hope. May we never forget it. May we teach our children to teach our children's children and so on that we can leave it a legacy of Advent hope that will grow when we are all long gone. Pray with me. Merciful, gracious Father in heaven, we give you thanks that your hope, that our hope in you is bigger than us, that even when our, our hope fades and even when our faith falters, that you never do. You accomplished the work of your hands, and we pray that you would accomplish your work in us, that you would help us to be a people who remember, 
and who encourage each other to remember, who don't get discouraged by the ebbs and flows of this world, but that we can set our gaze firmly on you, you who are establishing your kingdom on this earth. May you continue to grow it and expand it until one day the whole earth is filled with your glory, with your temple, with your presence. We pray this and long for this day in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.